Welcome to The Golden Shadow, the podcast about psychology, philosophy, myth, mysticism, and mystery. My name is Aaron Rogerson. And I'm Melissa Polizzi. Today, we explore the religious instinct. When we use the word religious, images of the five major organized religions will probably come to mind, like Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism. But this episode isn't really about that. This isn't about religion, per se. This is about the way that humans tend to orient themselves towards the world, uh, the systems that we desire to be a part of, the collections of rituals, practices, and philosophies from which we tend to derive the most meaning. And religion is actually present everywhere, in everyone, yet we hardly take notice because of the subtlety and complexity of these patterns of behavior. So we're talking about psychology. We're also talking about ways of being in the world. We're talking about meaning. We're talking about systems of social organization that people find themselves in. Mm. Alyssa, what do I mean by all this? What is the religious instinct? The religious instinct. Um, to me, the first thing that comes to mind is it's an archetypal framework. It's inherent to our consciousness, uh, a basic need, an evolution of our psyche and spirit, mm -hmm. whether we find it in the divinity of gods or in the sociocultural dynamics of modern day. The religious instinct is driving us towards discovery of meaning and understanding. Right. So people tend to gravitate towards certain activities, mm. groups, social organizations. There's narrative structures that we find very compelling in mm. the movies, in books, yeah. in our video games. There's... Um, tribalism that we recognize. We use this word a lot now. Sure. Tribalism, we're often talking about politics. Yeah. Um, but all of these things are pointing to this way of being human in which people get together around a common collective mm, myth, you right. might say. Yeah. And that myth might be a true myth, but it's still a story. Yeah. People organize around stories yeah. and they develop rituals, yeah. things that feel meaningful, mm. things that are fun yeah. and it's hard to really separate what's fun and what's activating from what's meaningful. Sure. But a good example of a religious tendency, something that is an expression of this religious instinct, might be sports. Mm. <laughs> and people wouldn't think of sports as being religious. Right. And I know that this is the reaction to us talking about this from some people might be like, well, that's absurd. Right. And like, excuse me, don't call me religious. <laughs> and it's like, we're trying to avoid making accusations. We're trying to avoid reducing people's behaviors down to something that is religious, but there's sort of an, a pejorative association with the word right. religious, which, right. is un, which is unfortunate right. because it, there's no reason that should be a negative thing because mm -hmm. it, it really describes the way that humans are. Yeah. And with sports, for instance, you're, organizing with a group of people yeah. around a common story, yeah. which is the story of your sports team yeah. or your sports league mm. of the NFL, let's say. Mm -hmm. You have rituals yeah. where you get together every Sunday right. and you participate in this watching a game. Yeah, um, There's a annual big ritual of yeah. the Super Bowl. There's um, colors that you all adorn mm. and you all wear together mm. and you find... People who participate in this, these these collections of practices, these yeah. rituals, and this common story, they find a deep meaning in this. They yes. find they find a home 
they find themselves plugged into something that feels right and grounded. Yeah, and a marker, I think, also of that religious instinct uh, being at play, that archetype being activated, is how much energy is around it. Mm -hmm. Emotional energy, uh, this fanatical kind of dynamic uh, connection that we have to something. And whether you're kind of in the stands, like rooting for your team, or you're at home yelling at the screen, like there is this sense of your spirit being captured in this. And it's not just this individual experience. It's collective. It's connecting you to this grander narrative of the team, perhaps, or to other people. You know, this person's on my side because we both root for the same team or that person isn't, you know, right. and there's this this really dynamic interaction that's happening around these situations that are activating, constellating that religious instinct. Right. There's there's stories from the past even that we have sort of this legend of this one team from mm. 1987 that played this one game, the big game, <laughs> where, where something crazy happened. Right. They had a crazy comeback. The quarterback at the time threw for an absurd amount of yardage yeah. or um, no one thought they could do it. And, you know, and these stories are actually um, collected into mm -hmm. documentaries and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And they're portrayed as sure. a story that has a climax. Yeah. There's a buildup. Right. There's some sort of unforeseen obstacle that right. emerges where the, someone gets injured on the team and somehow they rally and they still win the right. Super Bowl. And, and this, even though this is a true thing that actually happened, yeah. it's still a story. Right. It's still formatted in this sort of uh, archetypal narrative of struggle overcoming taking risk being heroic right it has the the mythopoetic structure to it exactly which is like uh-huh red flag like archetype is in play here mm -hmm. so this is something that's driving a powerful part of the human experience meaning um our our psychological connection to it it's something that's in some ways inexplicable and yet we're we're so connected to it that we can't live without it so even if you're not a sports fan you might be finding this religious instinct coming alive in other parts of your life right so often whatever we call religion um especially i would say nowadays if you're living in a modern culture and you have um a good education mm. and you have a scientific mind, let's mm. say all kinds of reasons. But what we tend to do is we, we tend to reduce religion down to a set of beliefs. Mm. And usually those beliefs seem absurd. Yeah. And so religion just becomes this idea of it's, it's a collection of absurd beliefs right. and anyone who possesses those beliefs must be stupid or crazy. <laughs> yeah. And we tend to do this. And that's why religion can often get this sort of pejorative notion sure, which sure. is like well mm -hmm. it's just what primitive people do yeah and that's really ignoring the vast and deep rich energy that is actually built into mm. what religion is expressing or right. achieving because re religious um content religious material um should be thought of symbolically metaphorically you know those stories they are myths that have been raised up to this like epic proportion. And in the modern day with a, a kind of a, an intellectual eye, we look at it and we just sort of scoff and we want to toss it aside. Mm. But this is, um, this is a collective inheritance of our human experience of, of the development of consciousness of our orientation towards understanding mystery and the unknown, the numinous, um, 
that kind of divine quality that sort of is woven through just like the fabric of our experience. And we even see it today in wanting to understand like the true scientific creation myth, right? You know, now we use science as a vehicle for for weaving that narrative of our understanding, but it in some ways still captures the same heart. Right, right. And so, again, you know, some people who might listen to this might feel offended by <laughs> the, the, at, at, at first glance at like what we're saying, but I, I, want, I want to be careful here and try to suspend this response of like, well, that's, that's ridiculous. That's, Mm -hmm. that's absurd. Science is religious in a, in a sense. It's, it's, we have to be careful because the scientific method is not really religious. It kind of (laughs) is working towards, um, negating bias. The scientific method is a method of sort of figuring out like what's real and trying to counteract what we think or what we want to be real. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. something like the big bang, story i mm. mean this is it doesn't matter if it's true yeah it, it can be true but it can still be a story mm. and the only way that we can really make sense of the big bane is to think of it in this narrative format sure mm-hmm. what is the big bane it's the beginning yeah we have to think of it that way mm. because if we don't think of it that way it's 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 dry it doesn't really seem to fit into the way that we structure our models of reality mm. our psychology the way that we process information and create a map that helps helps us navigate the world we're doing this constantly and yeah. we need to think of the big bane as being some sort of story a creation mm. story yes <laughs> and so what happened at the beginning of the universe um a pin drop of rapidly expanding space time appeared and expanded and expanded and expanded and there was so much energy that from that was birthed the entire universe stars came into existence they mm-hmm. lit up the darkness and suddenly there was light everywhere and then planets came together and then you had life on planets and like yeah. this is an epic story yeah, and we can't really make sense of it without having this sort of narrative format to it to really make sense of it to tell it to children who are learning about the universe mm-hmm. um and we see this this pattern again of our psychology we, we want to gravitate towards a grand narrative yeah. because if we don't have a grand narrative there's no way for us to derive meaning yeah. in our lives. You, we can certainly think of this as the the next step, the next evolution of the episode we did on personal myth, right, which right. was more of the person-oriented version of what we're talking about. What is the myth of your life? What is the story that your consciousness is telling? What a cohesive um, kind of storybook Um, exposition is unfolding in front of you but now we're kind of taking it to the next level to the community level to the to the the human level and that's the extension of the religious instinct because it's simultaneously generating energy and meaning and insight for you on an individual level and then connecting you out to everything else sort of in space and time right right so if if we can have a solid big narrative it allows us to make sense of the actions we take Mm. it allows us to uh, justify our suffering why am i working so hard why am i suffering so much oh there's a reason right Um, i'm part of a story right and so we need that And and when that's absent from our lives if there is no story to our lives it's just, well, I'm suffering for, for no reason. Right. Everything's a joke. Yeah. Like, well, why, why do I even exist? What's the point of anything? And you can see that people arrive at that place. And so what the religious instinct is doing is it's gravitating towards constructing a myth, mm. except it's collective. Yeah. Many, many people are doing it and it's yeah. evolving over time and it becomes a better and better myth. Mm. Um, 
it becomes a transcendent myth yeah. by which I mean it sort of goes beyond just the story of our our life now yeah. it's all lives mm. it's all of humanity it's all of creation mm. and there's so much um there's so much you can anchor into with your actions now and so much you can anchor into with the story of your children and their yeah. children and their children yeah and a lot of what we are looking for and craving is mm-hmm. is something that can accomplish this, some kind of myth. And so clearly, I would say religion or organized religion mm. achieves this. Yes. That's that's in, in a big way, that's what's happening is people yes. are having a collective myth in which they can make sense of their lives and it provides a moral framework yeah. of what you should and should not do. And this has evolved to be actually good advice probably yeah. of how you should probably live. And, you know, it, that, that, that gets complicated because the world changes very quickly nowadays and we <laughs> need to sort of adjust what you should and should not do. Um, but it's also provides practices, rituals, um, coming together for a communion sure. on a weekly basis or um, honoring the seasons or nature in some way, honoring uh, the union mm. between a man and a woman, sure. honoring the birth, um, death. Yeah, there's life, all these yeah. all these things that have evolved over time that are are collective rituals and myths that help us maintain a structure by which we can live by. Yeah, and a, a structure that allows us to relate to the the, the tribal dynamic, to the mm. family dynamic, to the community dynamic, to the world at large. Um, it's an evolution that I think shows the necessary need for individuals to to come together in some sort of uh, group mindset that brings structure, uh, safety, grounding, understanding, um, that religious framework um, kind of evolved over time and took greater and greater shape. And then, of course, spread across the world. But at at the same time, you can bring it down to this very small level. This is the ritual that I practice every day with mm-hmm. my grandma or with my family. I sit down and we do this. We go to church and we say these hymns. Um, you know, I meditate or I pray five, five times a day. All of these aspects feel dynamically personal, connect you to the kind of uh, the structure that's just outside of your view. And then you can expand that and think about someone across the globe who's doing a very similar thing and suddenly there's something that kind of bridges that gap uh, something that makes you feel an inherent um, kinship even and maybe that's a dynamic that's allowed us to evolve in a way that um, brings more of a harmony Um, definitely definitely a role of religion has been historically to sort of form bridges between mm. people where, where normally there would be no bridge yeah, bridge, yeah. bridges between king groups mm. bridges between people that you would normally say well i'm not related to you so why should i care about you right. and so that's the, the golden rule for instance is like sort of a universal thing in, mm. in major religions where like treat others how you want to be treated yeah that's that's an innovation um are you encountering a stranger treat them the way that you would want to be treated right. instead of thinking that they're a threat or that you need to kill them or right. that you should run away. And, and that's, that's been an innovation clearly that has helped culture to grow to where it is today. Mm. Um, but, and maybe we need to do another episode on ritual, but uh, yeah. the, the, I like, I like the point you make is that we, we can recognize even the small things in our lives that provide a lot of meaning. Mm-hmm. These, these small rituals, like you said, having a family dinner or um, a friend group, if just for fun, even like n- nothing more than fun. I mean, fun is meaningful much, much of the time, but a friend group will develop rituals like, um, 
once a week we're going to have a feast. Yeah. And what does that mean? It's like, well, we're all going to make a bunch of food and we're going to eat it. And mm. it's going to be a special night for that. Yeah. And let's say, well, why would you do that? It's like, well, because it's fun. I don't know. It feels good. And that, that's a ritual. Mm. And you can see that there's a lot of meaning that comes from yeah. that. As opposed to the idea of like, well, everyone just cook for themselves right. every night. Yeah. It's like, wouldn't it be more of fun if we came together and cooked? Yeah. It's like, okay, well, what's happening there? Yeah. It's yeah. like there's a, some sort of structure emerging. Mm. And from this structure, you are reinserting yourself into something that you're meant to be in in the yeah. first place. Yeah. And um, other rituals can, you know, in college, I, I was a cross-country runner and I had, a t- I had team rituals that were very, very meaningful mm. and very fun that we would do annually. Yeah. And one of those things might be just running naked on the beach. Like once a year, we're yeah. doing this thing where we all go run naked on a, a public beach. Yeah. And um, it's silly <laughs> and it's sort of like, you know, going against the rules and it's kind of like messing with people sure. who might see us, something like that. But um, <laughs> that kind of ritual provides meaning yeah. and it wouldn't be meaningful. Well, it might still be meaningful, but it probably wouldn't be as meaningful if you just did it by yourself. Certainly. Like this is my ritual. Once a year, I run naked on the beach. It's like, I mean, you know, I, I, I would have fun doing that. But um, you can see that this is this is sort of tapping into the um, the evolution of religion. Yeah. Where did it come from? Right. Well, why is it why is it adaptive? And yeah. If we're talking about evolution, we're always going to just kind of try and think about what is the function of this thing. Mm-hmm. Why why did it evolve? What what does it do that helps you accomplish your life goals, sure. which is usually multi-generational survival but um people want a tribe and when they're in a tribe that's meaningful Mm. and when the tribe can be organized and on the same page that feels good that Mm. helps you survive and so if there can be a common understanding between the tribe which is a myth a story of what we're doing and why where are we going why are we surviving why Mm. are we suffering so much and there's a story that emerges that says, well, the tribe must stay together and the tribe is traveling somewhere perhaps. And mm. um, those of us who die live on in some way through us. And we have children and our children will live on together. And that's some sort of story. And you could see how it would actually be highly adaptive for this kind of thing to evolve mm. and then to evolve through culture and take on sort of a mind of its own of um, the collective myth that brings people together and unites them in a common struggle mm. mixed with a lot of the interesting psychological facets of um, uh, perceiving or anthropomorphizing things. Sure, you might say sure. like anthropomorphizing the earth, right. Mother Earth, yeah. or the sky, yeah. the, the god of the sun. Yeah, turning them into gods. Um, and this is you know another episode of talking about why why is it that we anthropomorphize things personify mm-hmm. things why why are there gods and things like that but this all combines into something that is this this common united way of life it's an interesting point and i think it, it holds a lot of truth and a lot of resonance but it also makes me think so much about the the dynamics when those clash <laughs> because there actually isn't a fully shared religious instinct 
at least not that we're totally aware of. Mm -hmm. So those, it's certainly adaptive to really bring people together and cultivate community and for bonding and yet can also be utilized in a way that causes fractures and, and, and violence and, and hate of, of another group. And it, it kind of brings up the question for me, are we like rushing headlong to some sort of collective myth or collective religious instinct, which we can all actually unite behind? Will there always be these dynamics of struggle between, you know, different warring factions? Mm. Who knows? It's a, I mean, that's a deep question. Yeah. And um, <laughs> the, the things that um, are adaptive and things that are good for the tribe mm. might be bad for other tribes. Yeah. And that's yeah, a that much happens. more complicated discussion about evolution and how humans actually function. And of course, the religion you know, it's important to understand that this, this instinct that we're talking about is not always for good. Yes. <laughs> oh, I mean, everything terrible that's ever happened in yeah. history, you could say is a product of something like this happening. Yeah. You could say Nazism is this. It's religious. Yeah, sure, yes. It's people yes. uniting around a common myth. Mm, mm. And the myth is that perhaps there's a conspiracy that the Jews are hatching that caused Germany to lose World War One, And, yeah. you know, that's... That's a story and people can rally around uh, around that and come together and unite in a certain way of life. And clearly this describes these terrible things that happen throughout history. Right. The archetypal framework has no bias one way or the other. It's it's infinite possibilities in all directions and how it's grasped and utilized. And especially when a figure can anchor into that archetype and embody it, uh, sometimes for good, you know, like certainly the man who was Jesus was brought up into this powerful level of archetypal expression. Mm -hmm. And then you can look at someone like Hitler, who yeah. also is embodying this powerful archetypal energy where a whole, you know, set of people can throw more and more energy into and that builds and that can be wielded um, in a very dark and shadowy way or it can be wielded for peace and harmony and acceptance and loving thy neighbor. Right, right. And so, you know, and to to just give another example of, of how this is at work in our, in our current world, we're talking about sports, right? Mm. And that's a good example, but yeah. it's also politics. And so if, yes. if we look at the current political situation, yes. I think if you can understand what we're talking about, then you have to recognize that a lot of what's happening in politics is religious. Mm. And I don't mm. just mean that there's Christians involved in politics. I, I mean that people are coming together. They're uniting around a common myth. Sure. There's an enemy that they might come up with, mm. which is sort of, the army of darkness or right. the, um, the, 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 the demons in some sense, archetypal, you know, mm. no one is literally thinking demons, but the, the, the demonization sure. of the other people yeah. in some sense and coming together for a way of life united in a struggle. Um, the community collective organization of mm. that feels really good. feels really good to be part of something that's greater than yourself, part of a mission. And that's, very much and, and there's rituals right yeah. there's common rituals that are associated with politics and there's saviors that emerge mm. and villains that emerge and yes. so this is again a deeply religious pattern that we're seeing yes yes and that's why it's so powerful and also why it's so dangerous yeah and i think partly you know we're talking a lot about the <clears throat> sort of community dynamic of how this this instinct really drives us to 
to connect with others. Um, but I think a part of what I recognize or at least relate to in the religious instinct in, is how it drives the individual towards um, that dynamic of, of individuation, mm. deeper self-reflection, mm. uh, contemplative nature, realization of oneself, uh, realizing that there's something bigger, more than you. Um, right, right. And this is sort of like this, the spirituality yeah. aspect of religion that yes. we're, we're more familiar with in, in, in our current society. Yeah. Of like, what is spirituality? Yes. And what you're describing is this this facet of religion that's about self-development in yeah. some way or yeah. becoming more complete. Yes. Yes. And, and what that does, hopefully, when one is really embracing that or and whether that's in the framework of a of an older cultural uh, re- religious um, framework, you're you are stepping more into your true self, which mm. allows you to see your that other person who might be demonized now in a new light to understand your neighbor better, to forgive where you really want to hold that grudge. It both empowers you, makes you more of a, of a stronger, powerful individual, but also connects you much more deeply and truly and openly to the world and to right. others. And that in turn, strengthens that uh, communal development, that adaptive quality that this religious instinct tends to have. Right, right. Driving you towards um, a a structure Mm. again. If you develop a practice, we recognize that having a practice is good. A lot of people have practices now. They meditate, they do yoga, Mm -hmm. all kinds of things that people are, are trying out to put in their toolbox. And this is something that religion has done in the past. It's a set of practices. Yes. It's not just a set of beliefs. It's, right. it's, a, it's, an, it's a set of collective practices, mm-hmm. but it's contemplative. There's prayer, there's yeah. chanting, there's yeah. dance, food, mm-hmm. song. Yeah. A lot of these things are repeated things that you do. And the idea is that you're tapping into a structure that will help guide you towards a better place of being. Yeah. And individuation is very much going to a better place mm-hmm. and becoming more complete and more whole and at its best, that's what the religious instinct is guiding you towards, being all that you can be. For this next portion on shadow work, we're going to dive a little bit into our personal experiences with the religious instinct. What is our experience with it in the past? Where are we at right now? How can we make sense of this? And maybe give you guys a few ideas of how to explore the religious instinct in your own life. So, Aaron, tell us a little bit about your experience. Right. So, um, probably like a, a lot of people who are my age who live in a Western country, who knows otherwise, but um, I was raised going to church. Mm-hmm. I was raised religious, you might say. Um my parents are Christian, their parents, well, my mom's side was definitely very Christian, but either way. So this was, this was a family thing. I was taking to church every Sunday for a very long time. Um, I ended up leaving church pretty much as soon as I sort of felt like I could make my own decisions, mm-hmm. um, which wasn't really honestly until around like 14. Mm. Um, even though for a while, I didn't enjoy church. It was sort of a chore to me. But around the age of like 14, 15, I finally decided I'd like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I don't want to go. And I stopped. Um, and the question is why? Mm. So um, something that we have to confront if we're talking about this is what is religion in the modern age? Mm. And does it work? 
does it accomplish what we say it does? Yeah. Does it result in individuation? Does mm. it provide a healthy structure for which you can tap into and create a moral framework for yourself that's yeah. actually going to be good for you or the world? Um, these are complicated questions because the world is changing very quickly. Mm. And what religion was even 50 years ago is not what it is anymore, sure. much less a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. So um, I've always been a thinker and I've always been very skeptical and that is partly my personality. It's also partly going to school, my education, mm. um, being taught to think critically mm. and to look at the world scientifically. Sure. And um, I could not see past what appeared to me to be a set of absurd beliefs. Mm. And the story of Christ, for instance, the story that people have sins and God is imposing sins on people, like saying what you can't and can't do, and then God sends his only son, and then he forgives sins because his son dies, but it's like, but God, you implemented the sin system in the first place, mm. so why why do you even need to throw your son in there? To, like, you know, logically, even to someone who's like nine, right. it's kind of like, well, this doesn't make any sense, like, um, <laughs> and that was me, uh, and you know, even beyond that, the, the community at church to me seemed a little naive, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. The other children seemed not very interesting and mm-hmm. they seemed a little, um, I don't want to say brainwashed because that's, that's strong. It's a strong sure. term, but they, they kind of had a, a perspective to me that seemed like they had only been raised to experience good things and read good things Mm. and listen to appropriate music. And, uh, it didn't seem to me that they really matched up with what I was experiencing in school, for instance, with kids who seemed a little more in touch Mm. with what was going on in the world, whatever that means to, you know, a 10 year old. But, um, I just felt like I didn't fit in and I felt like, uh, this wasn't my community. Mm. Um, so I think that's the experience for a lot of people who yeah. are being raised Christian. Let's say I can't sure. speak for other religions, but sure. this sort of feeling of like, none of this makes any sense and sure. I don't like it. And therefore I'm leaving mm. to go do whatever I want. Mm. Um, and this is a tough question. Yeah. So you, you've had a similar experience. Yeah. Um, I was raised in a pretty religious family. Um, we're Catholic and, um, I think that I, especially reflecting back on it, you know, at my current age, I, I really consider myself someone who was like the prime candidate to be kind of initiated into a, a religious, uh, community because I, experience the world in a highly feeling uh, intuitive state and for me the religious instinct is something I just sense like deep deep within my being and even as an extremely young child there was this fascination a desire to kind of understand what that was this kind of unknowing unseeing yet powerful uh, moving tide that felt all around me and one of my earliest experiences, you know, um, was probably five or six years old, um, was my first communion. Um, and I was excited. I, I was ready to go to the church and I was wearing my pretty white dress and we were going to have a party afterwards. But I was most excited for what was going to happen at church 
with the priest? What was it going to feel like? Uh, was there going to be just something that hit me? And I remember going and kind of being in line with all the other kids. And the priest just said, uh, you know, go do five Hail Marys and then kind of pushed me off aside. And I, <laughs> and it was really sad. I felt totally let down. Um, and I'm so young at this point. It's kind of crazy to think about, but that was like, a very early failure for me to connect to the to the religion in a meaningful way. And um, I think that really kind of set the tone or maybe even symbolizes for me what it felt like, which is I'm, I'm looking for something and I'm looking to be, to be pulled in and grasped and, and educated and shown the way. And yet for some reason it's not landing. And if someone like me isn't getting gripped by it, then I I think it's probably majorly failing for other people who um, aren't even interested. So that that was a very early experience for me. Um, this sense that I I can't quite uh, anchor into the religion, and um, I'm watching my family, my extended family, all acting very religious. Um, you know, going to church. Um, praying before dinner, um, you know, observing certain rituals. And yet I, it seems to stop there. I don't know. I didn't feel a lot of that uh, religious dynamic truly from a lot of my family members. And I think that's very hard to explain from the point of view of a child. But once again, as a very like feeling intuitive type, I just kind of can sense the the shallowness or the hollowness right. of it right. from other people um, and the kind of mindlessness almost like we just do this. We do this because I was taught to do this and they don't actually know what it means. Uh, it, it doesn't really hit them in their spirit. And, you know, the only person that I really felt growing up that this was truly meaningful to was my grandma. And she taught me to pray at a very young age. And that, I think, is what has kept with me this tradition, this ritual, this sacredness, this connection to something higher than myself. Um, she taught it to me because as a child, I'd have a lot of night terrors and I would pray. I would do the Lord's Prayer and it would bring me ease. It would connect me to something bigger. It would, it would take me out of my experience. And that's part of like the religious instinct is, is guiding you through these times of terror and uncertainty, um, certainly, and also good times. Um, but, you know, I, I certainly didn't continue to uh, really embed myself in the Catholic culture and sort of slowly moved away from it. And I, I still s sometimes talk about it in a way that like I'm Catholic um, or, or like those are my family's ways. But at the same time, I've, I've felt incredibly disconnected from it and that um, recognizing that the religious symbols themselves are valid and important and dynamic, yet recognizing that they need to be filled with new meaning because they're not resonating to me anymore. Right. So the the current experience that I think both of us find ourselves at is um, we're definitely craving a group mm -hmm. or a tribe that's mm -hmm. a strong instinct of wanting to there to be a strong community that participates together in rituals. Mm -hmm. And that word ritual kind of sounds a little over the top, but that's really what it is. Yeah. Coming together to do things, to um, align towards a certain way of life together, which, you know, for me is mostly taking care of business, supporting yourself, supporting a family, having children, raising those children well. Mm. That's the sort of trajectory that I would like 
to be on and I would like to be on that trajectory with other people that I care about right. that, that I, that I love. And, um, I would like to engage in things that are fun, obviously, and that feel good and mm-hmm. to have cool events and go on trips and have some sort of impact on the community at yeah. large and do something that's good for the world. Um, those instincts are very strong. Mm-hmm. And if you really pursue those instincts and you really want to try and do this, you have to recognize that this is what religion does. Mm. This is what religion has always done. Yeah. Um, that's the, at its core. I mean, things that we often call religion sort of deviate from this a little bit and get into weird zones that really aren't trying to align people around a better way of life that's good for sure, the world. Sure. But that's, that's what we're seeking. And so it's easy, I think, for someone to argue. It's like, well, you should have just stayed at church mm. and you would have gotten all that. Right. So why'd you leave? And it's complicated because it, it, in one way that's true. It's like, you're right. I would have gotten that if I had stayed with my church and I, if I had made an effort to make that community, my community and mm. all those things would be there. Um, but at the same time, it's like, well, th- that community didn't work for right. some reason. It wasn't answering the questions I had yeah. and it wasn't aligning me towards uh, a place where I felt like I was growing yeah. really. Yeah. And it's tough because sometimes especially for children is like, you don't know what's good for you. Yeah. And so there's this weird balance that we have to sort of understand. It's like, well, should religion be adapted into something that's more viable Mm. for people who are young today? Yeah. Or should religion stick with what it is and maintain these rules and boundaries the way they are? And people should, um, impose that on children more to, Mm. and they'll realize when they get older that like, this is actually (laughs) the good path to go on. And that's a, and that's a tough question. It's a little bit of both. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's a little bit of both because the the heart of something so deep, at least when we're talking about like the major religions um, and those practices is something that can't radically change from what it is. And yet there can be the recognition that there seems to be a growing disparity between uh, the viability of it and the unviability of it. So how can that be addressed? How can there be an evolution? Um, The recognition that maybe for some people it's just never going to work, but at the same time, there's a lot of people that are looking for that and that it would really fulfill something um, some, some sort of place inside of them that feels, um, hollow and, and, and needing, um, you know, something deeply meaningful and structured, um, and sort of safe also to enter into. Right. So whoever's listening should examine what it is that they do with their time. Are, Mm -hmm. are you a part of something that resembles a group or organization or system? Yeah. Um, are you a sports fan? Mm. Are you a huge Star Wars fan? Are you part of a huge Star <laughs> Wars community? Do you go to conventions? Um, mm. Are you really into politics? Do you yeah. sort of have a very sort of tribal thing going on with politics? Mm. Um, a lot of us do nowadays. Yeah. Um, and you should examine that and say, am I getting most of my meaning from this realm? Mm. Um, if you're not part of some sort of tribe or group or something that resembles um a collective set of practices and philosophies and rituals if you're not part of something like that it's likely that you're missing out on a lot of meaning yeah and a lot of things that could be very healthy for your life and you might want to examine what is it that you can do at this point to plug yourself into something that's greater than you mm. that will provide a healthy structure that will yeah. connect you to others who want the same things. And that, that sounds kind of obvious, you know, it's like, well, join a club. Like <laughs> it's like true, but people don't realize 
how much we're oriented in this way that is religious. Mm. And, you know, for a lot of people, I would say, I think, I think it's fair advice to say, join a religion. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. What's, what the things that people think are going to be bad about doing that, I think are a little, um, exaggerated. Right. They fear rigidity and, or like neurotic behavior or control or right, something like right. that. But there is so much to explore, um, so many different, um, areas to, to kind of dive into and to mm-hmm. find what fits right and, you know, go from one church to another, one synagogue to another, or one group that's meeting up talking about this and, and find what, what really, is calling to you and what sits right because there's people with a very similar mission out there. And when you come together in that way, you realize that you're not alone in this sort of crazy game of life and, and it helps you, it strengthens you, it connects you to another and it can really bring a lot of richness to uh, one's experience. All right, now it's time for a dream from one of our audience members. This is from a 29-year-old female, and here's the dream. An old friend who I no longer speak to and I were stowaways on a large wagon in a caravan. We sat down at a dinner table and were accepted by the group. We passed through a curtain to a wooden amphitheater. As the caravan started moving, we realized we were actually on the back of a large black dragon, and we fell off. My ex-friend grabbed onto me, and I held onto the dragon's tail. We were flying low over a dark field of angry villagers. I was struck in the arm holding the dragon by a flaming arrow, but I didn't let go. I felt our chances were better with the dragon than on the field. This dream is so cool. Yeah, it's very uh, like medieval. Mm. There's like a lot of like medieval imagery going yes. on, which I find find interesting. Yes, yes, definitely. It gives you that uh, mythopoetic archetypal feel to it. Fantastical. Um, so we know we're dealing with that deep unconscious material often mm-hmm. when that happens. Um, it's kind of taking shape around things that we would often find in fictional stories and things like that. Yeah. Um, so where to start with this dream? Um, one of the things that really first grabbed me was this dynamic of connection to some sort of group or collective of people because we start this dream with the friend and and the dreamer um, as stowaways in this caravan. And just the word stowaways already puts the, the dreamer outside of a group. Um, mm-hmm. They're not actually part of this collective, but through this process, um, they're accepted. They, they have dinner and there's this feeling of acceptance. Um, but then things start to shift and change. And once she realizes that she's on this black dragon and they're flying over uh, this field, there is a set of villagers, another sort of community symbol that are attacking um, the, the dreamer and the dragon. So we're dealing with some sort of orientation or some sort of experience towards the external world, maybe her role in society, how she feels that she fits in, um, feeling in it and then out of it. There's this this fluctuating uh, dynamic that's happening in the dream. Right. And there's, there's a lot of movement to the dream. There's a lot of traveling. Um, she's a stowaway with her friend, mm-hmm. which means that she is on a journey somewhere, but she actually doesn't know where she's going perhaps because yeah. she's yeah. not driving. Right. She's not driving. Someone yes. else is driving and she has to remain unseen. Mm. So she's... 
not only possibly going somewhere that she doesn't know where she's going, she doesn't feel safe, and there's a lot of mystery, a lot of tension there yeah. with what's going to happen, yes. perhaps. And yeah. um, the acceptance into the group, as you say, there's a lot of coming in and out of safety and grounding mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in and out of vision, um, becoming visible, and then things changing and departing yes. back and forth. Yes, the the dreamer in their submission form mentions that they've been hovering back and forth between starting their own business. So Mm. I see that dynamic, that even just that energetic signature imprinted on the dream because what happens when you are at the helm of starting your own business? You put yourself out there. You're out in the world. How are you going to be received? What's your client base going to be like? How does that feel for you personally? And she's kind of moving. There's that... um, the the I'm in it and I'm not in it. I want it and I don't want it. I'm I'm open to it and I'm pushing it away. It's very ambivalent in that way. And I think that she kind of finds herself sort of caught right now in life in between the this crossroads and this dream seems to be working through some of that for her um, in the deep unconscious. Um, Another couple of points that are interesting to explore is her friend that's with her. She mentions in her submission form to us that this is um, an old friend, someone she had a falling out with, but that the the name of the individual uh, brings to mind um, the the, the Gnostic goddess uh, Sophia and that which is connected to wisdom and this this deeper archetype. Right. Philosophia mm-hmm. is love of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. And, and something that I found interesting with thinking about the archetype of, of, this, of this goddess is that there is a archetypal framework of the fall and rise of Sophia in her mythology, in her history. And so this, this figure, this friend, should be thought of subjectively for the dreamer, not as you know an actual objective representation of this ex-friend who she's had the falling out with, sure. but certainly that the dynamic of the loss, something you had and now it's gone, um, the, the figure kind of maybe even holding some of that archetypal material of Sophia is representative of those inner dynamics um, inside of her. So maybe this is a shadow character, um, some sort of uh, complex nature that she needs to connect to and understand because they're very much in partnership in this dream um, and they're kind of going through the exploration and the adventure together. So whatever that's kind of represents for her, whether that's this dynamic of connecting to something and feeling a part of it and then losing it, um, which we see also with the the community dynamic, with the group dynamic, Mm. um, this might be and an archetypal uh, narrative, an arc that's really important for her to explore right now. Maybe she's on the fall. Maybe she's feeling the confusion, the loss of grounding, um, kind of going deep into the underworld, going deeper into her own con- unconscious material. And part of that is recognizing maybe that deep inner w- inner wisdom, that Sophia nature that's trying to emerge inside of herself as well. Right. So there's... Um clearly projections of herself mm. on, on the friend and the dragon, I yeah, would say. Yes. And, and these figures are sort of united mm. in some sense because they're together. Um, she doesn't perceive the dragon as being scary or yeah. threatening. It's a black dragon. So it's the shadow. It's the unconscious. Mm-hmm. It's the power of the the content that's under the surface yeah. that you could harness and you could ride it to freedom or to a better place that's we talk about the golden shadow that's Mm -hmm. exactly what we're talking about 
Um, but the angry villagers, um, they are the outer world. Yeah. They're, they're whatever the external obstacles, the scary place that she might be venturing into with her business. Right, that, or the projection of the fear of that, right? The fear of that, the, mm. the, uh, the feeling of eyes being on you, the yeah. feeling that people are yeah. watching you, the feeling that um, the you know sort of vague mass of people representing the world might tear you apart mm. if you were to fall. Yeah, yeah. And so she's flying above them and there's a lot of fear that she's going to fall, but as long as she holds onto the dragon, um, maybe she'll be okay. And then she's mm. struck in the arm that's holding the dragon, yeah. that connection, that bridge between her and her unconscious, mm-hmm. let's say, that, or that bridge between her and that deep um, primordial energy, yeah. that energy of creation is struck with a flaming arrow and it's on fire and that's interesting. Um, but she doesn't let go. Yeah. So this there's a lot of energy in this bridge that she has between her and the dragon. There's a lot of tension there and it feels painful and perhaps it's mm-hmm. going to um, rip her apart. Mm. or set her on fire yeah. or something like that. But she holds on and that really speaks to this this path of growth, this path of individuation mm. of um, you disintegrate in some ways and it's painful and yeah. you, you leave behind what doesn't belong, right. but then you reintegrate and right. you come back into yourself and you gain strength and then you disintegrate again and there's so much pain and suffering that, had, that goes into this growth of becoming yes. the person you're meant to be of becoming more complete yes that's the like the alchemical stage of the negrito it's the blackening it's the disintegration it's the uh just everything kind of falling apart and it's the the sort of downward spiral into oneself where you're deep in the shadow deep in the unconscious material but that's a necessary step on this path of evolution and of growth because it allows you to get in touch with the shadow material allows you to see parts of yourself that are trying to emerge you know the the sort of dark and terrible and scary parts of the shadow but also the golden parts as well Mm -hmm. so this dragon i find is such a powerful interesting symbol um very um very much for me at least bringing up that primordial energy as you talked about instinctive unconscious and when we deal with that environment um sort of generated by the the sort of powerful ordering principle of our unconscious it's often driving us towards evolution and transformation and realization and that's not an easy path to walk Hmm. it's painful it is hard we want to resist it but we have to sort of embrace going into the underworld we have to embrace the initiations that are happening and the trials that are happening and she has this link up between she's holding on to the dragon, the friend is holding on to her. So there is a, a dynamic connection between the instinctual unconscious energy. There's the the connection with the friend who could be inner wisdom that's trying to emerge or maybe the, the arc of her fall and eventual rise, the kind of phoenix that will eventually rise from the ashes, hopefully. So, so much of the content of this dream uh, is, I think, hitting a place where the dreamer should consider what it means for her to really step out into the world, to to really contemplate and reflect on these fears and hesitations, um, and but recognize that at that same time, by doing that work, you're resolving and then hopefully integrating some of that, uh, those fears, those anxieties, the shadow material that's around that, and what's going to come up in its place is certainty and validation and self-assurance and certainly a deeper connection to these parts of yourself that's going to allow you to to rise up do you have a question for us 
Do you have a dream you'd like us to analyze? Is there a topic you'd like us to cover? We want to hear from you. Contact us through a submission form, which can be found on our Instagram page at Golden Shadow Podcast. Or if you're listening on YouTube, you can find the link in the description down below. Thanks for listening. See you later. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash golden shadow podcast. Thank you.